0: Hello, I'm David Hepworth. Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear, the latest of hundreds of chats Mark Allen and I have had over recent years, some between ourselves and others with musicians, authors, comedians, and other people we like. If you'd like to help make sure they continue, you might consider becoming a Patreon supporter by visiting patreon.com slash ear or just by liking or subscribing in whatever way you prefer. On with the show.
1: This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp. As a podcast listener, you've heard from us before. Today, let's hear from our members about what online therapy has done for them.
0: I would recommend my therapist 1,000 times over.
1: She has truly changed my life. The day after my first session... My friends and family said I sounded like myself again for the first time in weeks. You deserve to invest in your well-being. Visit BetterHelp.com to see what it can do for you. That's BetterHelp.com.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? Right. For me, that wasn't an option.
1: I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual
1: results may vary. Greetings, and we must remind you yet again that we are at Word in the Park in uh, Opera Holland Park, in Holland Park in West London, on June the 3rd in the afternoon, 2 till 4.15. It's going to be awfully good, isn't it, Dave? It's going to be awfully good. The weather's going to be fabulous.
0: It's going to be remarkably... It's it's going to be the day of the year, as it has been in the two previous years that we've done it. But this year, that's even more assured. Uh, And let's remind everybody who we've got we got John Higgs talking about his book um, about the Beatles and Jones Bond and the British psyche. We've got Leslie Ann Jones talking about 60 years of the Rolling Stones, which will be pretty much to the day that week, 60 years since the release of their first record. And we got Bob Stanley talking about his book about the Bee Gees. You've been reading that this which week. Which I've
1: been reading, and it's fantastic. You forget, Bee Gees, of course... Went to Australia, pretty much branded as juvenile delinquents. They were transported, effectively. (laughs) They were transported. They were got out of the country. The Bee Gees of all people so badly behaved at school. There are so many extraordinary bits of There's a bit where they decide to come back to England. And they've written that they're really quite big stars, quite established stars, actually, in, in, in Australia. And they're halfway back in the Suez Canal where they get a note saying they're now number one in Australia. And uh, they've, they've thrown it all in to go to see uh, NEMS, you know, Brian Epstein's company, uh, which they do. And, of course, the whole thing takes off fantastically. And it's just a, a series of massively high peaks and massive troughs. Well, the bit I'm at the moment is, is where they're out in uh, Honky Chateau and magically synthesizing the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever. And it, it's just thrilling to see how the the various ways that they arrived at that absolutely extraordinary sound. Didn't they happen because the drummer had to go home to drummer a funeral? drummer had to go home for a yeah. funeral. And so they didn't know what to do. So they just got, I don't know, eight bars of what he'd done, and they just looped it. And they yeah. decided that they liked the loop and then changed all the textures of the music they were playing, and they developed their falsetto style at that point. So all those things came together into something, you know, absolutely extraordinary. It's a brilliant book. It's going to be great. So that's Bob Stanley is going
0: to be talking about the Bee Gees, his book Children of the World. And we're also delighted to say we're going to be joined by our old pal and friend of the pod, Claire Grogan, who's going to be celebrating 40 years since being on the cover of Smash Hits. (laughs) and uh, and being in the top 10. So she's going to talk about 40 years and more of ble- being Claire Grogan. So that's all at Word in the Park on June 3rd in Holland Park. Make sure you get your tickets links below. You're listening to a podcast from the Word. A uh, stack game. I'm uh, indebted. We are indebted, in the words of Cyril Fletcher of That's Life, uh, to John Norris, listener, who suggested this idea for a stack which I went off and researched. And so, Mark Ellen, what you have now is five names, okay? Five names. Cool. One of them is the name of a member of the fall. Okay. Oh, right, okay. One of them is the name of a member of the fall. And the other four are characters played by Bernard Cribbins
1: in various TV (laughs) Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good good because both seem to have kind of, you think of cardigans and (laughs) find some mild, don't you? There's a strong scent of cigarettes. This is good. Flat caps. Yeah, you do. So, okay, five
0: names, and four of them are characters played by Bernard Cribbins, and one of them is a member of the Fall. Okay, here we go, Mark. I'm going to give you the five names. Spencer Burtwistle. Spencer Burtwistle. Right. Wilfred Mott. Wilfred Mott. Dougie Wingate. Dougie Wingate. Frank Cosgrove. Frank Cosgrove. And finally, Herbert Soppet. Herbert Soppet. One member of the fall, four characters played by Bernard Cribbins. Can you identify
1: the member of the fall? Oh, my goodness me. Those are good. Spencer B- Birtwistle sounds like a, an out-of-work driving instructor, and I think, he's, I think he's by here, Bernard. Was it Wilfred Mott? Wilfred Mott, again, dotty old maths teacher. <clears throat> Dougie Wingate. Oh, that's possible. Frank, was it Cosgrove? Cosgrove. Cosgrove. And Herbert Sop it. Sop it. Sop Sop it. it. Herbert Sop has got to be a made-up character, as is Frank Cosgrove, I think. I'm saying that the one that's the real member of the four, that's a brilliant, brilliant analogy, because they're so similar, aren't they, is Dougie Wingate. Am You'd I be right? R- You'd be wrong. You'd be uh, wrong. Go on. Dougie Wingate was a character that Bernard
0: Cribbins played in Midsummer Murders. No. Wilfred Mott was a character he played in Doctor Who. Frank Cosgrove was a character he played in Down to Earth. And Herbert Soppet, the character he played in "When We Are Married," it's so Spencer the Bird member Whistle. of the Fall, that's was Spencer Birdwhistle, who incredible. played he played drums on their albums between two thousand and one and two thousand and eight. So he stepped out of Blandings
1: Castle too,
0: doesn't he? Uh, yeah. and so thanks very much to John Norris. For, Very suggesting, nice. for suggesting that idea, and if you've got an idea that's yeah, yeah. Uh, as good as that, you know, send it to us. we we'll would be superb. delighted
1: to hear it. Good work. So,
0: it's been a busy week this week for uh, Ed Sheeran. You know, who's been putting on his
1: shirt and tie. I'm glad to see. He's uh, playing and, guitar uh, you know, in court, wasn't he? Um, playing guitar in court to demonstrate that the songs that they're accusing him of is—is is it Thinking Out Loud? His song has been has uh, been, been sued by the. The estate owning "Let's Get It On" by Marvin Gaye, I think, isn't it? And has that been resolved? I don't think so. I
0: don't believe so. It's still going on. It's a very complicated case. We can see it's been it's been sued by uh, Ed Townsend or the heirs of Ed Townsend, uh, who co-wrote it uh, with uh, with with Marvin Gaye. Uh, and the, first of all, there was a, a debate as to whether this individual had had, I think, the legal term is standing. To actually instigate this action because they were, they were, um, I think they were adopted by somebody else. So their relationship with Ed Townsend was not clear. Yeah, yeah. And also, if you look into the background of these cases, there is so much money to be won in these cases of supposed plagiarism uh nowadays. That you're getting kind of what you might call ambulance chasing lawyers going around trying to try to scare up people who've got some kind of relationship to some huge song from 40, 50 years ago.
1: And it's and always the it, people with the most money, isn't it? it's always Lady Gaga, Rihanna, et cetera, isn't it? You know, well, it's always the people exactly.
0: who've had a huge hit yeah, yeah,
1: because of- that's where the money is. You know, it's always the you know, we
0: keep re- repeating this thing again and again, you know, that. Uh, where there's a hit, there's a writ. They don't come after anything that wasn't a huge hit because they won't get a lot of money out of anything that wasn't a yeah. huge hit. And it's always it's almost framed in terms of this is, this is theft, this
1: is copying, this is absolutely disgraceful. On the assumption that they're sitting down and just listening to a song and saying, I'm going to write down that chord sequence or that melody, and directly lift it, which I, th- I think is very unlikely to happen, don't you? I think the whole
0: notion of copy, it just seems ridiculously, you know, inappropriate and, you know, metaphor for what is going on here, you know, that if you look at how, how music is, well, for a start, we talk about it being written. Well, most of the time it's not written at all. You know, it's, it's worked on in the studio. You know, somebody plays a bit, somebody sings a bit, somebody plays a bit more, and so forth. And it may not even be written down at all. You know, we're, very often we used to find this, you know, going back to Smash Hits, didn't we? Used to find you get a record at number one.
1: Yeah, you'd ask for the and lyrics. You would <laughs> have to pay for the lyrics. lyrics.
0: You pay the, the publishing company for the lyrics, and then you say, have you got the lyrics? They go, no, we haven't got them at all. <laughs> and very often they'd have to get back to the singer who'd have to go and listen to the record and write down what it was that he thought he remembered yeah, singing, absolutely. you know. yeah. So the idea that it's it's kind of like somebody might write a novel or a poem just seems not very appropriate at all. And so if you look at the way, if you look into the way that um, uh, Let's Get It On, which is the, the case at issue here, how that was written in the first place, you know, there were th- two or three people involved in it, all writing different bits. It first of all had totally different lyrics, and then somebody said, "No, let's do it like this." It ought to be about sex, you know. It wasn't about it originally. Originally, and so that that's a very loose process. And then Ed Sheeran making his record, however many years later, fifty years later, or whatever, is an equally kind of loose process. And the idea that anybody, any stage, said wow, this is just like Let's Get It On. That's a good idea. just seems very far-fetched to me. You know, you listen to the record, and, and once somebody draws your attention to the fact that it's supposed to sound like Let's Get It On, you can hear it.
1: You can there's, hear it, and I think you drew attention to that fact himself by actually playing it once in a concert, which they're using it in the in the lawsuit against him. But also, I think it's a, there's two separate sides of it. There's the melody, and there's the chord sequence. Yeah. You know, famously, people go on and on and on about how, uh, you know, no woman, no cry so you can sing you know um you can sing uh, let it be over the top of it and vice versa but i mean they're not the same tune and that is not even really quite the same chords so i i i i in in neither case with ed sheeran does it sound like they're the same chords all the same tune it's just got something of the sensibility isn't it which is happen.
0: but also if he you know what do you say no one no woman no cry and let yeah, it be Yeah, let it be okay so you know, no sa- stage listening to "No Woman, No Cry." Do you think that's wow? This is like "Let It Be," right, right. and I'm and I'm liking it because it's
1: like "Let It exactly. Be." Exactly. And, and yeah. no stage in 1974 did Bob Marley put on a copy of "Let It Be" and go right. I'm taking that chord. Absolutely. Right. It just didn't happen. But if you what, start a, chord, a song with a certain chord, there are natural chords to go to, and uh, so many songs have been written that it's absolutely inevitable. You won't, you won't, uh, you won't stumble across something that's already existed.
0: And also I mean I've no experience of writing songs but I've got a lot of experience of writing and when you write you you're constantly playing with words and tone of voice and so forth and trying to think out how, how to frame something you know it very very rarely springs straight away from the back of your mind you yeah. you work at it and and as it becomes pleasing to you when it starts to resolve itself into a into a sort of shape, yeah, it has a rhythm, and, and I'm sure it's the same thing with music, completely. And if it, if you if whatever you're doing has resolved itself into a pleasing shape, it's highly likely that you're not the first person to ever have done that.
1: Yeah, because there aren't that many ways of doing Right. Because it. it just sounds pleasing to the human ear, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely.
0: That, that's that's all of us, and uh, you know. And so, how do you learn to write? Well, you learn to write by loads of reading, don't you? Simple <laughs> that. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, loads of people read, but you've got to read, and then you've got to read kind of analytically to a certain extent, haven't you? Because you read enough, yeah. you read it in a way you think, oh, I can see how that works now. I'm starting to see how that works. It's like I only recently realised that P.G. Woodhouse, you know, who you and I, you and I, i revere. Love. He always always puts the funny word right at the end of the line. I'm sure he didn't mean to, yeah. but that's what he does, you know. And and once you know that, you think, oh, that's useful guidance. You know, that's that's the kind of thing that works. And I'm sure,
1: you know, songwriters... It sounds like GK Chesterton falling into a sheet of tin. Was it? Was that, was that like, <laughs> I, I,
0: yeah, it's, it's a troop of cavalry, troop of cavalry crossing a tin bridge. <laughs> that's brilliant. Tin Bridge. Tin it's always it. the absurd things at the end of the yeah, line. The yeah, tin yeah. Bridge, you know, sort of the uh, you know into the man on the esplanade outside the hotel Splondide in Cannes. Over his face, there there stole the uh, look of anxiety that usually indicates an Englishman is about to talk French. <laughs>
1: Talk French. Talk French is the payoff, isn't it? It's absolutely the payoff. You've gone all very the short to the, words to really short words, leave really leave short. Throwing them words. in the air. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: he's full of that. Anyway, sorry, that's getting that's off the so point. That's so good. But, um, and I'm sure if you're writing songs all day, every day, you are, you know, you are realizing, oh, this is how Paul McCartney did that. You yeah. Know, This is what makes this song work, or Paul Simon, or anybody who's come before. It doesn't mean that you're sitting there and copying it, because that that kind of implies
1: you think you're getting away with something. The only person I think who probably uh, I get the impression really did do that was Noel Gallagher. I remember interviewing him in 1993 or four, when the first album came out, and he told me he'd sat down and and cigarettes and alcohol was stolen from T Rex. He'd stolen from ABBA, he'd stolen from Crowded House, he'd stolen from U2 and and the New Seekers. And I think partly the reason he did that was because he wanted to make the point that these unfashionable songwriters were still ones that he enormously admired. You know, ABBA at the time weren't that hip. I mean, even if he did, he didn't care and he didn't mind if he was sued, which I think on various various occasions he has been.
0: But, you know, I think it's, um, I think what's going on in, in, you know, it's in the States, isn't it? of late it's kind of it's, it's heading for a scoundrel's at this it's you know what I mean it's a, anybody thinks I can make oh, a few yeah. quid out of this you know and and so you again people coming, hoping they'll settle out of court just and all, to avoid also, the, let, uh, the irritation and also let's not forget it, the people who wrote these songs in most cases are dead you know yeah. and, and the rights have passed to some bank Effectively, yeah. that's what it is. There's people investing in these things, you know it's um it's not taking it's not taking bread from the poor man's table. This isn't at all. you know this, really. this is directing wealth to people who already have quite a lot of it. And uh, with a very inhibiting uh, effect, I would have thought on uh, on songwriting. It, I mean, surely, you know it can't go on like this. You would have thought not. But you know we'll have to wait and see. As they say in the newspapers, the case continues. The word podcast: prime cuts of popular
1: culture served fresh each week. So, Mark, say Santana. Well, I always thought it was Santana, but it's mm. Santana you say. You say Santana, I say Santana.
0: How would I know? It's a Spanish word. I come from Yorkshire. You know, these two things don't meet at all, do they? They're, they, you know, are different approaches to vowels. But anyway, the thing about Santana, or you call them whatever you want to call them, I rediscovered them in the last week. I found myself playing,
1: do you know, Caravanserai? It's fun. the opening track on Caravanserai, the instrumental. Yes. With the crickets and the string the bass crickets, playing that weird, that weird type of speech. Oh, my God, that's brilliant. Do you know I what it's love called? That it's
0: called the it's this is where this is uh Santana, who started off doing songs called Soul Sacrifice and you know, Jingo Lobar and things like that. Yeah. Within a few albums, he got a record out. The opening track is called Eternal Caravana Reincarnation. I know. <laughs> That's the fastest, fastest change to the
1: kind of um, ethereal, you can imagine. Indication that you're doing terribly well, you can do what you want. Because they started <laughs> off, you forget, yeah, they start off with kind of pop songs, Evil Ways on the first album. Just a yeah. pop song, really, wasn't it? Not written by them, of course, but you know. No, I, well, that's the, one
0: of the things about them is they weren't very good songwriters, really, because most of the most of the, the songs that are associated with Santana, Black Magic Woman, and things like that, <laughs> were, when, were songs taken from other people. Um, which
1: really contributed to Fleetwood Mac's success, actually, because that was, they was: fighting hit with that than they did, didn't
0: they? I suppose so. But, but their instrumentals are just astonishing. And the one you talked about, Eternal Caravan oh, and re- re- Reincarnation that opens Caravansai, the, even, the more impressive thing is the, is the tune, the track that ends it. Every step of the way comes right at the end of that, which yes. is an as absolutely astonishing instrumental. And of course, this is a long time ago. You know, this is this is this is fifty years ago, more than fifty years ago since that one. Well, the first that
1: record one. came out, yeah, sixty nine. I think that was fifteen when the, it came out. First, first one probably came out earlier than that,
0: didn't it? First one, I don't know. No, I think it
1: was, I think it's early sixty eight. Because a, oh, it's the, a great record.
0: They're on fill your head with rock or something yeah. like that. And uh, anyway, it's a long time ago, you know. So so this came and didn't out... didn't it no, seem
1: exotic at the time, hearing those Latin... Re- I'd never really it, heard anything like here's that. Here's the point. Here's the point. It still does. Yeah. This is
0: 50 years later. 50 years later, and nobody has done what Santana did. And certainly nobody's done it better. It is astonishing. There's 50 years since Scaravanserai. Okay. Yeah. 51 years. Now take 50 years away from 1972 and where are you, Mark? The first world war has only just ended. Only it's it? 1922. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? 1922, the, there's barely any recording. Radio has not launched. You know, we, that's absolutely astonishing. So if you played a record from nine, you know, from the early 20s and you played a record, mind in 1972 they would sound like they came from completely different planets. Totally different
1: universes. Yes. Whereas
0: you can play Caravan today. You can play Caravan ride today, and you wouldn't know that it'd been made 50 years ago.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it made yesterday. Those it's absolutely astonishing.
0: You know, I suppose it's technology, aesthetics, its way of playing, you know. It's, um, you know, there, there are hardly any kind of what you might call electronic instruments on that, you know, so it's just,
1: it's a lot of percussionists. It was a lot of percussionists. That was the thing that really knocked me out. I can remember the six of them, but four were members of the rhythm section, weren't they? Were yeah. Congo players, Mike Shreve and uh, and the bass player. And also there's that incredible clip of them playing Soul Sacrifice at Woodstock. And I think Michael Shreve, Mike Shreve has only, had only just turned oh, oh, yeah. I think the whole band, teenagers. the oldest member of the band is 22. It's astonishing. And you know, so Carlos Santana
0: had had kind of established himself as a musician in in Mexico, and then had come to San
1: Francisco, and yeah. kind of started again, and had got to Woodstock. And how old? Did twenty two? Twenty two. I think he was twenty two. <laughs> He's the oldest man. None of them are over twenty two. It's absolutely astonishing.
0: It's it's a it's an amazing record. I even found myself playing um, his record with John McLaughlin, which I'd never really heard before. Love, Devotion, and Surrender which is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, he's still with us. Um, but I don't think, I don't really think playing anymore. I think I'm right in saying. I think he's been ill. Um, but uh, it, still it well, is.
1: And ludicrously young, of course.
0: It, it is just remarkable. I do urge people, if you haven't listened to, <laughs> to Santana in a long time, go and listen to a record like Caravan Strike, And I defy you to, to, indicate any sign of it being done 50 years ago rather than being done yesterday. Absolutely astonishing. The Word Podcast. It passes the time.
1: So Bill Drummond was 70 yesterday, the the day before we're recording this anyway, and uh, we were there, Dave, at what was effectively pretty much the moment he retired, which is astonishing, and which I I note that The the Observer once rated as the fifth greatest uh, publicity stunt of all time. Number one being Elvis joins the army. Number two, the sex pistols on the boat in the river. I know. Number three, Robert Johnson sells his soul to the devil. Number four, Madonna publishes a dirty book. But fifth was the KLF's final appearance. The KLF had won at the Brit Awards. They'd won Best Group or something, hadn't they? And they came on, and we were there. It was at the Hammersmith Odeon. It was. And they came on with Extreme Noise Terror. They came on first. With Machine Guns. They came on first. Yeah, they opened
0: the show. And it was one of the loudest things I've ever heard in my life.
1: George Salty, you remember?
0: Sir George Salty? Sir George Salty, the great conductor, who was in the audience to pick up his classical, best classical recording award. He literally fled to the exits. He went past me. I was sitting on the aisle. Fled with his fingers the, in his ears. With his finger
1: in his ears. I don't blame him. No I mean, right. that
0: that was loud enough to.
1: To you know. I was shocked. I can remember. My God, it was it made me feel quite unwell. Actually, that volume. <laughs> yeah. and they, one extraordinary guy, because they kind of retired then, didn't they? They said that's it, and then they cancelled their. They deleted their back catalogue, which would have lost them a fortune. And then they gave away all the money in the, in the Isle of Jura, which they really did. We had Mick Houghton on the podcast, didn't we? He'd written a book about it. It was the PR for various of uh, Bill's uh, projects. And they clearly burned a lot of money. Whether or not it was a million pounds, I don't know, but it was wads and wads and wads. It was a huge amount. And then he kind of retired, and he's done not very much. Since. Well, no, he's done loads. It's been nothing in the kind of, in the kind of musical area. He did a thing where he, he, he instigated No Music Day, when you look at his website, you think, has he has he just hacked into this himself? <laughs> just made it all up. But no music days on the 22nd of November, St. Cecilia's Day, the patron saint of music. And he had a thing observed in Scotland for five years where they had no music played on Radio Scotland and only only, uh, only uh, no, no music or jingles. He formed a choir. Uh, he formed a, a web-based project, including mydeath.net, where you can plan your own funeral. And then he went on tour, on a world tour, doing paintings, stopping every few months in a, in, a, in a capital city and painting 25 paintings, which is pretty unusual, isn't it? This man's he's, let me, he's let a performance me, artist. Let me let me ask you a question. Yeah. You
0: know, the, the whole idea was he burnt a load of cash. Would anybody burn a lot of cash now in a stunt? Because we kind of stopped believing in cash, haven't we? Yeah. I can go into the West End of London and frequently do without any cash on, on my person at all, which is something at the beginning of lockdown would have been inconceivable. Yeah. Nowadays, everybody does it. You, know, you swipe your phone or whatever. And so, cash doesn't have that kind of totemic quality, does it? And so, nobody would bother to do a stunt. Involving a load of cash, would
1: they? Well, Joe Lycett did one recently, didn't he? Did he? Where he shredded ten thousand pounds, I think. But it cost. I mean, there's quite a lot of grief about it. People just thought it was just an an appalling thing to do in this day and age. Oh, really? It was just (laughs) at a time when, at a time when you can't, um, you know, when when everyone's a bit strapped for cash. Really, it seemed appalling. But he got a lot of a lot of attention for it.
0: But no, you're right. Yeah, it's funny. Talking of uh, the KLF and Bill Drummond, actually, I should should also mention, John Higgs wrote a book about the KLF, which is actually, and this doesn't often happen with uh, music books, which has actually been republished in an expanded edition uh, quite soon. So there'll no doubt be copies of that. If you happen to be coming along to Word in the Park on June the 3rd, and if not, why not? Um, you know, our people will be signing books, selling and signing books and so forth. And so there'll no doubt be copies of that there. So the KLF is one of those things, uh, you know, the story gets more extraordinary, more the events kind of recede in the
1: rear view. <laughs> really. He's fantastic. He's a kind of performance artist. He was an artist before he started out, really. Yeah. And he always thought of everything as being a massive stunt. But the fortunes that he's made and lost, I, re- I really admire him and I think he's really... Really interesting, and uh, he's a kind of McLaren character, but yeah, more extravagant and more creative than McLaren. He's talking,
0: talking of No Music Day, I must just draw your attention to a thing Jamie Bowman sent me uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, and then we were, we were uh, uh, wittering on in recent weeks about how fed up we were with the sound of amplified bus.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
0: that We didn't think we didn't think a busker ought to be audible more than 20 feet away, or whatever was our distance. And this has been taken up by the good burgers of Burry in Lancashire. And so in Burry, they're uh, taking steps to ban amplified sound equipment in Bury's town center because the local local shopkeepers and shoppers alike are, are starting to complain about it so you know we we may be there at the beginning of a, of a, of a wave that's going to spree the country well, well think? i
1: think we're right don't you because the idea is that amplification is cheating and it's an imposition and it means that anybody can't avoid hearing the busker surely busking is all about the skill of putting on a performance or a stage act of something it's place. trying to get people.
0: it's trying to get people draw nearer to you draw them in if you can yeah. draw them in then you've done something to entertain them not if you've uh, you know if you've reached them you've a 100 yards away <laughs> that's a, yeah, yeah. that's a different thing that's noise pollution but i don't expect young alex to agree no doubt we'll be hearing from him later this is a junction in the word podcast it separates that bit
1: from this next bit.
0: I have to say I was delighted to see that HMV are reoccupying the store at 363 Oxford Street that I used to work in damn near 50 years ago. <laughs> and, um, and you know, all the very best with that. I, I don't know how much resemblance this will have to the kind of shop that I worked in you know, which was a big superstore which had a classical department and soundtracks and tapes and all those kind of things. But anyway, it did strike me again the other day when I had some time to kill in the West End of London. And you and I have both worked on Oxford Street, you know, or near Oxford Street, near Oxford Circus for years. We worked just round the corner from the HMV, didn't we? And one of the time-honoured ways of killing time in the West End of London was that you could go into bookshops or record shops. There were loads of them. And bookshops and record shops are not like clothes shops or shoe shops or whatever. You know, they have a kind of news value to them, don't they? Absolutely. You you go in, you see what's new or what's on the chart, or I don't know, what, what events are taking place. You don't necessarily buy anything. They're just there. And for years, that's what you did. In the West End of London, if you had half an hour to kill, you popped into HMV or Virgin or Waterstones or Borders. <laughs> Remember all those? Mowbrays, yeah, all yeah. those kind of places. And of late, you know, as of the last 10 years, there has not been, I think I'm right in saying this, there has not been a single record shop or bookshop on Oxford Street or
1: Regner Street. I think I'm right in that. I'm yeah, right, I think like, so. But there's lots uh, of just off awesome them things like Sister Ray and stuff, and none of the really big. Well, there's not lots. There's, lots, lots. there's a lot. No, lots of few. There's sisters. a
0: handful. There's like two or three in Soho. That that's your lot, really. Um, and you know, and nothing like the range that it used to be. And I think that's been a real shame, you know. And and obviously, i w- I would guess one of the things that's got HMV back in there is the landlords must be offering fantastic deals for people to come back in, you know, because they want Oxford Street to be regenerated. You know, they, they don't like vacant and stores. Not just
1: full of American candy shops. Absolutely, so, because yeah. this
0: was, you know, has been of late an American candy store. That, that you know, eyesore and abomination that we see all over the place in the West End at the moment. And they're kind of Westminster Council are fighting back against that. Uh, and uh, so you know it'll be good. Uh, but the HMB round we have
1: such fond memories of it because we were around the corner, didn't we, around the time of Vice. Well, that was you, you and were and you, and stuff yeah. like that.
0: Uh, the bigger one, yeah, the,
1: the later one. That That's was the, the that one. was the early one up, up the top end of Oxford Street, Boxwood Circus, and there was always somebody Echo and the Bunny Men or somebody always playing on the roof at lunchtime, and it was great. We went down there all the time, or lots of lots of lots of in store appearances. Went lots of lots of pop stars turning up and signing records. It was brilliant. Yeah, so you know, all, all the best, to,
0: all the best to them to,
1: in re-establishing it. The
0: word podcast, two cocoa
1: tins, and a piece of string. I saw this interesting little news story uh, this week about uh, the about, about the Black Keys who publicly declared that they were insulted. That was the <laughs> word they used by their offer of <laughs> the amount of money they were offered to play Glastonbury. It's really interesting because of course Glastonbury pays. Uh, I know because I was quite involved with it uh, for a while when uh, various EMAP magazines were were uh were covering it and um i got to find out lots about it. and they don't pay very much well partly because um you know it's it's a it's a charity organization you know last year i think they gave two million over two million pounds to oxfam so they're trying to it's not as profit driven as as the majority in fact they're just trying to make even and do it again next year but uh in the in the uh, coverage of this story about the Black Keys, Emily Evis said that they'd paid McCartney and Coldplay £200,000 each, which mm. is very, very little, isn't it? £200,000 is, is, you know, when you're a, a, an actor of that stature, because you're you're imagining you're getting several millions, probably, to to, to headline big European festivals. is isn't very much. But, of course, the reason people do it is it's Glastonbury. You want to be involved. It's fantastically good credibility. It reaches a completely different audience. And, obviously live tv so the publicity value of it of being associated with it is enormous but i thought it was uh strange that they'd uh, they would uh, they would complain so loudly about the fact that they would never consider playing this festival ever again because they were insulted by the amount of money they're off <laughs> it's a bad move to me i don't know
0: yeah it does really um it's interesting isn't it you know 200,000 pounds you say that's not much money well everybody knows that's a lot of money, really, but you know
1: well if you're it, an enormous but touring with all that stuff and that well okay that's that's the point the, you know, the, you know, the expenses
0: the expenses are huge you know huge so if if you were getting two hundred thousand pounds for a gig, how much of that are you are you netting you know yeah, maybe a hundred thousand I don't know yeah um I have really no idea at, at all. You know, it's very difficult making judgments about about these these sums, isn't it? You know, but um, I'm sure you're right. It's not even publicity, is it? It's it's something kind of beyond publicity because publicity always makes me think of newspapers. It always makes me think of, of oh, how many people are reading the newspaper? Oh, yeah, hardly any, hardly any at all. Um, and uh, but it's more people know that you're doing it. You know, and they kind of know that by magic or by social media, don't they? No. Um, they, they won't, they won't read about it. They won't see it, but they'll be aware that it's going on and they, the awareness has a value, doesn't it? You it know, does. Because, because it, it drives up the perception that you're, you're desirable, which kind of drives up your, um, your, uh, your visibility and drives up and your if price. if you're one of the
1: old guys, it associates you with a lot of fabulous young and fashionable souls. That I'll tell, tell,
0: tell you what, I saw this thing this week. I couldn't help thinking of this when Bruce Springsteen did his Barcelona show opening his European leg of his tour this week. And of course, you know, we've all heard and seen. well, I haven't seen it in the newspaper. This is a classic, but I've seen it. That that you know Michelle Obama appeared on stage with them during glory days. And I just thought how extraordinary it is that people that famous still would like to be slightly more famous wouldn't they you know what I'm yeah. <laughs> you would have thought Michelle Obama you know you know why great affection and respect for her and so forth, and you would have thought she'd say, you know if Bruce Springsteen said if you were backstage, mark, at a Bruce Springsteen show. And Bruce Springsteen said, yeah, why don't you come and join the choir on glory days? There's part of you that nobody wants to see me, for God's sake. I'd be an embarrassment. You know what I mean? I would let the side down. Whereas if you're as famous as Michelle Obama, you don't think that, do you? You think, no, I'm Michelle Obama. Crying out loud. I, I, I think
1: he's just brilliant. Publicity generation. Oh, well, yeah, well, I mean, but he's so, is, world tour, but so, so is she. Oh, so yeah, is she's shit got a off. she's got a book out, mate. She's got a book She's out
0: always got a book out. And yeah. and the point about Michelle Obama, she's sold, she's made a fortune out of book publishing. Fortune. Now I don't know. I haven't read any of these books and I've know reasonably they're not really good. But it's celebrity is what gets those deals. Completely. And uh, you know, so every time you appear on stage at Bruce Springsteen or whatever. It, it,
1: it, you know, you, your value just goes up, doesn't it? It's fantastic. It? The and night before that, they went out for a meal. The, the Springsteens, uh, the Spielbergs, and yes. the Obamas yes. went out to a restaurant in Barcelona and they didn't know who'd booked it. And so when they turned up, you can imagine what that restaurant was have thought. Unbelievable. They just, but they made sure they had a photograph of them with all the staff and all that. I'm sure they did. And also, it makes you realize just how hip Michelle Obama is. And I'm trying to think of any other. First Ladies or other halves of major politicians who- i mean you know Sam cam, Carrie Johnson, do you know what I mean the only one I could think of was Carla Brunei, Carla Brunei was married to Sarkozy, wasn't she yeah, and you interviewed actually what? not uh, no i didn't um and you can't I
0: don't do. think I did no, no um but anyway um no i think I think you're right well she's you know Michelle O'Brien is it's just. She's very, she's very famous and very, and very loved, and very ticks a lot of yeah. boxes, you know. Um, but uh, I, I did think that was absolutely fascinating, you know. That um, and of course, big as Bruce Springsteen is, if he gets Michelle Obama on stage doing one number in Barcelona, the
1: picture goes all over the world, all over the world. And all and, she has to do is just hit the tambourine a few times. She looked brilliant, actually. She looked yeah, really great. Yeah, it yeah. worked. It did. I
0: was impressed. So Harry Belafonte uh, finally passed away in the last week. I don't remember a time when I wasn't aware of Harry Belafonte.
1: I think Harry Fel- Belafonte the Banana Boat song. is <clears throat> the first song, along possibly with Elvis, that I can actually remember coming out. I think I was four when it came out. And in my, in my mind, I can remember that coming out. I could just remember everybody singing it. It was a massive hit, wasn't it? Wasn't there also a pastiche of it? Was it Stan
0: Freeberg, one of those guys, that was always played on children's favourites, or whatever? Could have been. A uh, uh, kind yeah. of hipster retake of, uh, of the Banana Boat song. And, of course, didn't Bob Dylan make his recording Boston's debut? Bob
1: first ever recording was on, um, was on a Harry Belafonte record. Uh, and I'm not trying to remember which one it was. I think he played
0: was. harmonica, didn't he, or something like yeah, that?
1: Yeah, on Midnight Special. Right. He was a harmonica player. That's right. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. And, and I, think, I think one thing it was fair to say about Harry Belafonte is nowadays, absolutely every tin pot actor who's done two tellies and, uh, and was once in the bill. On, If you look on the Wikipedia place page, they will all say, actor and activist. Yes. Well, Harry Belafonte invented was that. an actor and activist. He really was. He invented that. Yes. Whatever you did, Mr. Wikipedia, is nothing compared to what Harry Belafonte did throughout a long and distinguished career.
1: Yeah, and his very, his very early uh, drama lessons, he was in the same class as Marlon Brando and Walter Mattaugh. That's fantastic, isn't it? Its connections were extraordinary. <laughs>
0: you must have thought I'm never going to make it if you happen to no. be in that. If you happen to be in that class, which brings me on to—I tell you, what, just, I just the stat that's been going through my head. Two two things been going through my head yesterday. I was out in the garden yesterday, Mark. The weather was nice. I, got my sh- I Had my shorts on yesterday. Got my shorts on today. Um, I'm looking forward to the summer with uh, yeah, with optimism. We anyway, deserve it. Two. Things going through my head. I was reading uh, a book about Shakespeare, uh, Will in the World. Well, I can't remember who wrote it. Greenwald, whatever. He says that Shakespeare was probably the first member of his family to be able to write his own name.
1: This is just astonishing. So not it's... only did he learn to write his own name, he then wrote th- <laughs> the immortal plays sonnets, poems. So Britain's, greatest, Britain's greatest
0: writer okay, was the greatest at doing something that he was the first in his family ever to do. Ever to do. Now, that's pretty unique, isn't it? It is. incredible. You know, you normally think you build on the, you know, previous generation's skills and so forth. No, he invented it and then perfected it. Absolutely astonishing. And the other thing, the stat that was going through my head yesterday, I read somewhere. Um, You know, football academies, you know, all the Premier League teams have academies where they identify children quite young, you know, six, seven, whatever. These people have got exceptional talent and therefore we're going to get them on our books and we're going to encourage them and we're going to get them to learn good football habits and so forth. And then a certain number might come through and play for us. Do you know what percentage of academy players ever play so much as one game for a top level club? What percentage? Now, bear <laughs> it's in mind.
1: Be really, really chillingly low. Bear in mind. 4% or something.
0: It is 3%. No, no, no. 3%. And bear in mind that these are not just kids who fancy themselves as footballers, as most kids do. These are kids who have been identified by adults. At the age of seven, coaches, whatever. These lads are exceptional. Get them in here. 3% ever play so much as one game. Now, bear in mind, there are thousands of players who play one or two games and then get sold on or put out on loan or whatever. So the number who actually make it consistently at the top level
1: is way smaller than that. So the, the 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 chilling stat there is that ninety seven percent of those people at the age of about eight or nine had and their entire extended family would have would have been well aware of this had the chance that they might be the next David Beckham or whatever absolutely uh, and, and they've got to readjust to that afterwards My God, and then and then yeah
0: there are people who are always you know there are initiatives to, to to try and deal with the fallout from this yeah because you know, it's catastrophic for loads of 15-year-olds who just let go because all they've been thinking about is I'm going to be a footballer. Yeah, I don't need to worry about anything else. Don't need to worry
1: about Never even considering another career. Anything. All their efforts would have been put into that. And yeah.
0: suddenly everything collapses, you know. I don't think you should be allowed to encourage kids at that age, you know. When you know that the, the odds against them are... are are that stark. It's just astonishing. I can't but then that, it pays
1: uh, off, doesn't it? How old was Ryan Giggs when he was signed? Something like 11? Wasn't he something like 11 years old? Well, I'm sure he signed some kind of, of form.
0: Yeah. Some, some kind of forms, you know. But, but think of all the people alongside them, you know, who never made it at all, you know. And when they were eight years old, they were all equally, equally talented. And I suppose, you know, just... You know, it, it there's a, the parallel with music is people always say, Oh, they should have made it. You know, they were really good. They could play. They had good songs. They should have made it. It's luck as much as anything else. You know, it's just, it's, it's not life is not fair. As you can see, you know, by looking at those stats about football, it's pretty much the same with popular music, although with popular music. You can kind of elect yourself, can't you, at the age of 18? You can say, I'm interesting enough to form a band. You haven't waited for some adult to say you are, you? Yeah, have absolutely. You, you know, you haven't, you haven't passed an exam, so to speak. It's only your self-belief that says that you're going to make it. And the truth is, it's probably 3%. The Word Podcast, one of the few things you really need in life. Did I mention, Mark, this word in your ear is brought to you thanks to NordVPN. Remind me once again, Mark, because it slipped my mind, what does a VPN stand for? It's a virtual private network. Say that again. Virtual private network. Very good. (laughs) And that's a way to keep your data safe on the internet, whether you're logging on at home or abroad, particularly important abroad. VPN protects your identity and encrypts your data so that nobody can steal your identity. And at the same time, it enables you to access the internet via servers in more than 50 different countries, which means you can often sidestep region restrictions and stream movies and TV programs from all around the world. Talking about programs from all around the world, I made the acquaintance this week of Colin from Accounts, have you seen that? I've watched. I've watched two episodes. You watched two. You You're yeah. one ahead of me. Yeah, I've nearly I was, finished the
1: second. Yeah. And that's
0: an Australian uh, Australian comedy. Did you notice the kind of disclaimer right at the beginning of it? No, go on. Where it said it said this. Uh, it pretty much said you know this this was filmed on on territory you know stolen from the Aboriginal people of Australia. And we apologise, kind of thing. Oh, really? Pretty extraordinary. And uh, you know, it struck me as a classic case of uh, you know how how we change one taboo for another. You know, because because calling from accounts, which I thought was funny, contains a scene. That I've never seen the like of in any in any comedy um, show ever. Without
1: giving too much away, which scene are you talking about?
0: Well, I can't possibly. It takes place in a bathroom. Oh yes, uh, it does. But yes. um, I thought it. I thought it was a good, a good. And I have to stop myself saying to my. Uh, this is a rare case of me being able to say to my daughters. Have you seen Colin from Accounts? It's really good. Because you've got to be really careful, I find, with comedies. You can't go around saying this is brilliant. You'll You're going to love this. Yeah, yeah. This is right up your street. Because as soon as you said that to people, the hackles rise, whatever hackles are, their defences go up and they're determined to prove you I found you wrong. It last
1: night because I was suggesting to my wife, that very softly, I said, I said you might like it. You but didn't boy, overcook it. So you might not, I don't know. But I mean, Dave, Dave's said and he likes it and I like it and it's good. Well, and she did like it, but she was kind of, <laughs> of horrified by the scene that you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. But I have to say, it's a piece of script writing. Again, I'm not going to give this away, but the basic premise is two people who've never met in a split second have their lives inextricably wound together. That's true. And and the way it happens, the way that it happens is the most superb piece of uh, of plot writing. Because, you know, there they are with their lives, perfectly happy uh, at nine o'clock in the morning. And at 9.15, they've been plunged into this unbelievably torturous, expensive and complicated situation. It's so clever and so good. And it has anybody who likes The Office will like it. It's got that same kind of agonizing comedy, isn't it? It's just the excruciating moments. It's terribly good. I
0: had to watch it. it. I had to watch it standing up because, uh, you know, I had to kind of retreat from the telly. Because you can hide behind a sofa. Well, a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. but anyway, let's uh, let's stop that. Let's not you know, let's not do it, do it any damage by recommending it too highly. But you might you might enjoy it. So anyway, back to Nord. You can take advantage of the deal where you can try NordVPN by going to nordvpn.com slash your ear. Or just use the code your ear to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan and one additional month for free and a bonus gift. And it's risk-free because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. Full details, as ever, in the show notes. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. Okay, any other business? We're joined by Alex Gold. Hello, Alex. Hello, hello, hello. Have you seen that piece in The New Yorker? Uh, this week, it's about the national, and they've got a rather splendid photograph of the uh, of the five of them, kind of sitting in the snow, really. Uh, and And the headline is "The Sad Dads of the National." But they are so
1: spectacularly uncaptivating. They? They're the anti-strokes, aren't they? <laughs> They're the anti-strokes. They are completely. I mean, they... and, go on. I was going to say, it's not It's that not they're not kind of, you know, they're all perfectly reasonable looking, but they've made absolutely no effort whatsoever to make themselves look any more glamorous. Because that's the whole thing is there have been lots of groups that haven't been very glamorous, but that having not much glamour develops a glamour in itself. The Fugs, the Mothers of Invention, et cetera. But these guys are just the most normal and ordinary and uh, unprepossessing group I think I've ever seen in my life. They look like
0: it's a checkout queue at B&Q, isn't it? it is. Whatever If have turned around, you know. Are these people who've turned up, you know, looking yep. at tools, or are they the national, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, don't you think, I get the feeling that there are, there are going to be more and more groups who look like that, Alex. Do you think you know, there's going to be fewer and fewer young whippersnappers in leather trousers, you know, looking as if, Get, come and get me girls kind of thing, <laughs> and more guys who look like the national, whose wives or partners have said to them, no, you're not going out dressed like that, you know. Where where are you going today? Oh, I'm going to a band rehearsal.
1: Well, yeah, I feel like musicians <laughs> are generally less outlandish characters anyway, so it's definitely going in that direction. Um, all the people in spangly trousers are walking around Camden anyway. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> yeah, they haven't
0: got time to form groups, have they? No. They're too busy out there posing. Whereas, you know, they, I mean, how old are the members of the National? They're probably 50, are they, Mark? They
1: must be oh, yeah, I think Mark. they are. Yeah. They're getting on that way. and um, But it's very much that kind of, uh, you know, there's no division between band and audience. Is that? The best example of that, I think, and probably the most un- uncharismatic group I think I've ever seen was the farm. Do you remember the farm oh, in right. nineteen ninety-three? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just they made absolutely no effort whatsoever to do anything at all to make them look like they hadn't just strolled on stage from uh, you know, wearing the clothes they were already wearing. No, that yeah. the-
0: it's is odd, isn't it? Don't you think that you know that now that rock has kind of <laughs> it's a kind of minority taste, isn't it, really? So it's gonna it's gonna end up like the average group is going to end up like the average jazz group. You know, it's, it's a bunch of middle-aged blokes. Yeah. Who, who kind of make a point about the fact that we're not here to excite you. We're just here to play the records. Yeah. You. There's nothing about us to buy into other than the record. There's no artists, the no
1: con. No. There's no spin. Yes. and uh, It's honesty. Like, raw honesty
0: i always get the feeling that sort of more and more festivals or you know the bills on festivals are taken up by groups like that you know
1: i feel like bands are formed these days less to change the world and more just to to be able to get away from the wife for a bit (laughs) you know (laughs) it's the it's the garden shed isn't it? It it it's the allotment
0: i think i think you might be right you know it's extraordinary how these um I keep seeing mention of of groups who've, um, I do not remember, I was, I was talking to somebody about one the other day, I can't remember who it was. It was a group who'd formed know, in the 80s or whatever and had, had done nothing, or, you know, commercially or anything. But there they were getting back together again 40 years later and doing like three shows, <laughs> you know, and it was to get out the house, wasn't it? It was a hobby, you know. It was interesting, actually. Were we
1: talking to Sid, uh, Sid Griffin about Well, it legitimizes this? going to have a drink with your old pals, <laughs> yeah. he? but for a month-long period in Europe, you know. So it's just an absolute hoot.
0: Who are we talking to? Yeah. Were we are talking to Sid when Sid, oh, was, yeah. uh, Sid Griffin was, uh, you know, going out with the Long Riders. I think they've just finished, haven't they? Yeah. Um, they've just wrapped up that tour. And Because there they all were forty years later, you know, and one of them sadly died. So the that encouraged the rest of them to get together and do it kind of one more time, you know. And that was pretty much, uh, you know, they've all got grown up kids. Oh yeah, so poor. And it was can we can
1: t- we can afford to take a month off? Yeah. to go and do I a. Think, few I mean, the music shows. was the least important thing about it. it the important a, thing was that the old guys got together and drank beer and we uh, <laughs> played dominoes in the evenings yeah i just talked about things i could i could see the point very nice. We, we don't
0: need to do that we've got the podcast <laughs> yeah i <laughs> saw i saw one of our old two of our old colleagues this week mark who said do you ever see mark i said c is is the it's a rather difficult verb to interpret. I That's... see him every day.
1: I don't actually physically see him in the flesh <laughs> more than twice a year or whatever. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I don't know. So what else have we got to tell people about, Alex, under any other business? We should uh, remind people once more, Word in the Park, June the 3rd. June Holland, the 3rd. Boy. Tickets
1: via the show notes below. Um, we should probably talk a little bit about our patrons, shouldn't we? Yeah, go on. One of whom so, is Paul Jackson, who I should mention was the guy who sent me an email this morning. She's saying uh, about Bill Drummond, which reminded me we should mention Bill Drummond as we did earlier. Thank you for that, Paul. Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm so sorry. So any
1: communications of any kind, any is very welcome. We loved the one earlier on about uh, Bernard Super. And uh, If you've never taken
0: part, if you're a Patreon supporter and you've never taken part in the Friday night quiz, we start a new one because it's a new month. We start a new one this coming Friday. So if you never take part, now might be the opportunity to uh, to leap in. And you can just turn up and observe. You don't have to
1: it's a safe it's a safe space. It's just a safe it's space. space. You're among friends. It is. It's we very ought to promote it as that. It <laughs> is definitely, as you want it to be.
0: It's definitely Precisely. it's definitely a safe space. Um and if you want to find out about being a Patreon supporter, if you go to patreon.com slash word in your ear is that correct Alex that that is is?
1: indeed correct yes patreon.com forward slash word in your ear
0: and there you can find details and we look forward to seeing you again next week this podcast was brought to you by the word
1: or slash covered your personal info like addresses phone numbers and more are collected and
0: sold by data brokers but aura steps in scanning the web sending you alerts
1: and requesting your info be removed get aura's full toolkit including credit and transaction monitoring a password manager vpn and more get a
0: 14-day free trial at aura.com slash safety that's a-u-r-a.com slash safety